Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. As I'm saying the Lord's Prayer, I know many of you are going on in your mind and saying it. We know those words well, don't we? But when we pray that, do we really mean it? Do we really mean, God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? God, do we really mean thy kingdom come? Are we building God's kingdom here on earth or are we building our own? Today we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 9. And as we do, we're going to be looking at a man by the name of Abimelech. Abimelech, you'll remember, means my father is king. He was not God's appointed judge, but he was a self-appointed opportunist. He was a man, as we're going to see today, who had a lust for power and a willingness to do whatever it took in order to get what he wants. Now, while Abimelech didn't know the words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Christ gave those words to us in the first century. He did know what it means for thy will, God, be done, thy kingdom and not mine to be built, because Israel was a theocracy. The word theos means God, and a theocracy was that it was ruled by God. Israel was a nation under God. He was their king. He was their sovereign. Last week we saw in Judges 8.23 that when his father Gideon was offered the kingship, Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Abimelech was one of Gideon's sons. He knew the throne did not belong to anybody but the Lord. But rather than yielding to God, Abimelech said, my kingdom come, my will be done. And because of that, as we're going to see today, there was a a number of disastrous results that came about. And as we look at Abimelech's story today, I want you to look at your own life. I want you to ask yourself, who has the throne of your life personally? Are you a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl who has seized control of the throne of your life? Or have you given God his proper place? So I invite you to look with me now as we begin uh, looking at Judges chapter 9 and reading verses 1 through 4. It says, And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives. And he spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also, remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Now what we find here is the beginning of his campaign to be king. And from what we see in verse 2, it appears that the 70 other sons of, of Gideon, whose name Jerubbal, had been having some kind of a shared power arrangement. But Abimelech said, I want to be the sole ruler. I don't want to share power with anybody. And so he goes to Shechem, which is a, a major city in the central region of Israel. Now, it was under Jewish control. Remember, there's been rest in the land for four decades at this point. But its population there is a mixture of Jews and Canaanites. And as Jason talked about back in uh, Judges 8.31, Gideon had a concubine in Shechem. Remember, Gideon didn't finish well at the end of his life. He started making compromises and various things. He had multiple wives, which God said don't do. He also had a concubine, which wasn't even at the status of a wife. It was kind of a a sex slave 
unfortunately. And so he has this lady over in Shechem that we find is a Canaanite because Abimelech, the son through this concubine, uh, comes to the Canaanites and he says, hey, listen, I'm bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Now, this isn't just a statement to say I'm a hometown boy. This was his way of turning his back on his Jewish heritage. He was aligning himself with the Canaanites and turning his back on the God of heaven, Yahweh, Jehovah, and saying, I am one of you to the Canaanites. Uh, We see that the lobbying works because he gets a cash contribution from the followers of Baal Barith. Now, Baal is the pagan god, the chief Canaanite deity, and Barith is a Hebrew word that means literally covenant. And this was another direct slap in the face to the true God of heaven, Yahweh, because as you look at Joshua chapter 8, Yahweh had reaffirmed his covenant with the people of Israel under Joshua there in Shechem. So he's in Shechem, the place where the covenant with the true God had been reaffirmed, and now he's saying, I'm making a covenant with the the pagan uh, Canaanite god Baal. And so he aligns himself with this worship, and having gotten the financing and followers he needs, verse 5 tells us, Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbal, was left, for he hid himself. Now, he doesn't wage a traditional campaign. Some of you remember your days in middle school and high school when people would be politicking to get on student council and you had signs on the lockers and buttons and bribing people with suckers and candy to vote for you and things. Uh, Abimelech doesn't do any of this. He says, I'm just going to eliminate the competition. And when it says that he kills 70 of his half-brothers on one stone, this is telling us there's a mass execution. He brings everybody together, there's this public square, and he lines them up, and one after another, they're killed in the presence of the people. Now, the body count is stacking up literally. There's so much carnage going on that nobody notices when one of the brothers, the youngest, disappears. So Jotham escapes, and we're going to see that he shows up again here in a few verses, but with the competition eliminated, the coronation begins in verse 6. And all the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled themselves together, and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar, which was in Shechem. Now, this is speaking of the oak of Moreh, which you find mentioned in Genesis 12, 6. And this, again, is a very significant place because this is the place where God made the covenant with Abraham, where he promised, I will give you this land. The oak that is there was also near the site of the blessings and curses that were read from the law when God had Moses bring the people together in Deuteronomy 11:26 through 32. And again, in Joshua 8:30 and following as the covenant was reaffirmed. This is also the place where Jacob buried the idols and called his family back to God in Genesis chapter 35 and verses 1 through 5. And finally, it was there that Joshua gave his last speech to the people And he had them reaffirm their obedience to the true God. You see what Abimelech is doing is he's going to all of these places of deep significance to the nation of Israel, to their heritage. And what he's trying to do is is grab all this sacred history that's now being degraded and dishonored as he tries to use it to lend legitimacy to his claim to the throne. Now, while everybody else is standing silently by, we see that one man has the courage to stand against what's taking place. Because verse 7 tells us, Now, when they told Jotham, 
he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and he lifted his voice and he called out. Thus he said to them, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Now remember, this is Gideon's youngest son, the guy who had escaped earlier. Now friends, if you were the one who had just escaped death and you're out in hiding, are you going to pop back in and say, hey, you missed me. Here I am. Come and kill me. But this is what Jotham does. He says, I cannot stand for the injustice that is happening. And I will stand up here on the mountaintop and I will cry out what you're doing is wrong. I want to remind you that all throughout Judges, we have seen men and women of courage. We have seen individuals who were willing to stand at the risk of everything, including their lives, to say, I will, I will stand against the injustice in this time. I will stand for God. And as we've seen these courageous women and men all throughout Judges, I've encouraged each of you to say, look at their example and look at your life, where you are right now in your schools, in your military bases, in your workplaces, when you are out in society in general, and and ask yourself, am I a man or a woman, a boy or girl of courage? Will I stand for God no matter what the cost? And here Jotham is willing to risk even death. He climbs to the top of Mount Gerizim where he crashes the coronation ceremony. Now, as you look at this slide, this is the actual location in Israel. And what I want you to notice is Mount Gerizim is here, Mount Ebal is there, and Shechem is right in the saddle between these two mountains. This is why God gathered the people there for the reading of the law. It was a natural amphitheater. Uh, you, could, you could hear very well, and so as he climbs to the top of the mountain, And as he calls down into the valley, the people could hear everything that he's saying. And as he speaks, we see it's a prophetic fable that God gives him. We find this in verses 8 through 21. It says, Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, you come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge under my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbal and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbal and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and he went to Beer and he remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. So there's this prophetic fable 
that is given. And the people are pictured as a forest of trees. And he says there's this group of trees and they're searching for a king to rule over them. And there are three choices that are mentioned first. And each one is a fruit-bearing tree. And the significance of that is that these trees didn't seek to be served. Rather, they wanted to serve. They said we're providing for others. God has given us to be a blessing to, to you, the other trees, the people. But instead of taking, they said we, we want to be a blessing and give rather than taking this place of the king. In the early 1900s, there was a man by the name of John Armott. And John Armott was offered a number of very significant, prominent positions that he turned down. Uh, one was the U.S. ambassador to China. Another was the president of Princeton, which was being vacated by Woodrow Wilson. And later, the position of secretary of the state was offered to him. But Mott turned down all of these offers and honors. He set aside these prestigious positions because he was serving as a missionary. Now, one of his acquaintances was kind of flabbergasted that he would turn down so many great offers. And he went to him and he said, he said what are you doing? Why, why are you giving up these great positions to stay in such a lowly role as that of a missionary? And Mott's response to his friend was, if God calls you to be a missionary, then don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to be a missionary, then don't stoop to be a king. You know, sometimes society makes people feel like they're in lowly places. Some who are stay-at-home parents are told, what are you doing? You're wasting your life. You're not wasting your life. You're impacting lives and generations. Others of you are in a rank or a role right now where you have an opportunity to move up the chain of command or to to climb up the next rung of the ladder, and yet you realize you're in a place of, of great significance and impact where God has you, and so you forego that. And again, people look at you and go, what are you doing? Friends, if God has called you to a place of impact for the kingdom, then don't stoop to be the king. And this is what's happening here. There are those who had opportunities to, to take that role as the king, and they said, we would rather serve than be served. But the people of Shechem wanted an earthly king, and so they keep looking and they settle on a bramble. A bramble is a low, thorny bush that covers the ground. Now, verse 15 sees, seethes with sarcasm because this bush is pictured as telling these 100 feet high cedar trees, come and take refuge under my shade. As you look at this slide, I want you to notice that white arrow in the bottom right corner, and there's a line that gives you a reference because there's two people standing there in the shadows. And I want you to get an idea of what the cedars of Lebanon look like. These are the trees. And so you see the laughable picture of these massive trees that are being told by this low bramble bush, come under my shade and my protection. And this is the picture that God is giving through this prophetic fable. It's like the empty campaign promises of our day where politicians tell us they can provide all these things for us, and there's no way. As Abimelech is saying, I will provide protection. I will provide for you. Friends, they already had the God of heaven, a theocracy reigning over them, protecting them, providing for them. There had been 40 years of peace at this point in the land, and along comes Abimelech and says, come and take refuge under my shade. 
Abimelech was a leech. He was a puny little plant that was sucking nutrients from the ground or the people. And just like ground cover that spreads in a forest and ultimately becomes fuel for a a later forest fire that will consume the forest as the, the fire will be fed by it and rage up into the canopies of the tree. This is what God says is going to happen. Jotham says Abimelech will destroy you with fire, and we're going to see a literal, a literal fulfillment of that in just a moment. But before we look at the fulfillment of that, let me mention a principle of application here for us. In physics, there's a principle that says nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. And what that means is if there's a void, something will rush in to fill it. And that's true not just in the physical world, it's true in our spiritual lives as well, because each of us men and women, brothers and sisters, we have a God-shaped void in our life. And if we do not put Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, on the throne of our life in that proper place that he deserves, the things of the world will rush in to fill it. There will be Abimelechs of the world, these cheap counterfeits that will take that place As you think about your life, if it's not filled with the rightful king of kings, then the things of the world will fill your life. Romans 6.16 puts it this way. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, that you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin that results in death or or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You see, we have this God-shaped void in our life. And Satan says, let me fill that for you. Money, materialism, power, pleasure. These are the things that he offers. And those things may fill that hole for a short time, but they will ultimately show themselves for what they are, a cheap substitute that will leave you empty. When I was in college, one of the ways I worked my way through school was I served as an RA. That's a resident assistant, a resident advisor, and That's kind of like the uh, dorm mom or dad, you know, in in the schools. Some of you I know have served in that capacity. And the place that I was in RA was at uh, Jester West, which I was on the first floor at the University of Texas at Austin. And it was a twin tower of over 14 stories, and it was appropriately nicknamed the zoo. Uh, And there was a reason it was called the zoo. And a lot of times the, the you know, students would uh, wreak havoc and they would have damages to their room. Things had to be repaired. And at the end of the year, when you checked uh, residents out, you would have your sheet and you'd go in the room and you'd note all the damage and it had to be charged against their deposit. And uh, to try to, you know, maintain the, the rooms, the, they were fairly indestructible, thankfully. You know, they had cinder blocks, concrete walls, and they were just painted this stark white color. But... Uh, People would go in, you'd hang things on the wall, including making nail holes in in this. And so as you were checking students out, they had to have repaired any damage, including filling in the nail holes they had made to hang their stuff. And one of the popular fixes that had been passed down from generation to generation of student is that if you took some uh, white toothpaste, you could kind of fill in the nail holes in your walls, right? Some of you are laughing because you know you did it yourselves. And... Uh, it was amazing how minty fresh so many of these rooms smelled on checkout day. Uh, now, one guy didn't quite get the concept because instead of using white toothpaste, he used what he had, which was a blue gel. And uh, I think he was a transfer student from Texas A&M. I don't know. Uh, 
Now you all know I have an Aggie daughter. I love Aggies. But anyway, he, he didn't quite get the concept, so he went around and filled in with blue gel, and it made it real easy for me to charge him $5 a nail hole. I'm like, okay, I, I see all your things. Now, even when people use the right colored toothpaste, it, it wasn't a good thing. Because what would happen is over the summer, they'd lock the rooms up, the heat would kind of get, you know, turned up, and this toothpaste would, would kind of harden, uh, it would shrink, and it would fall out of the nail holes. So not only did the new year begin with a whole bunch of uh, holes in the wall, uh, but things came along during the uh, off-season to eat the toothpaste that had fallen all over the floor, roaches, rats, other things, you know. It is a college dorm that I'm talking about here. Um, and so what would happen is the, these rooms were, were infested and they were left in, in a, you know, a bad condition. And as you think about that, I share it because I want you to think about your own life this morning and what you're filling that void with in your life. What are, what are the cheap counterfeits that you're trying to fill that God-shaped void in your life. Because what you'll find is in time, it will leave you worse off than you were before. You know, the world offers these temporary uh, counterfeit fillers which crumble. There's only one thing that can truly fill that God-shaped void in our life, and that is God himself. It's why he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. It's why God left his throne in heaven, took on flesh and blood, became a man, walked this earth, lived a perfect and sinless life so that Christ could ultimately go to the cross and give his life to die for you and me, to pay that penalty of death we owe for our sins. And that's what God offers to us, to fill that void in our life. He tells us in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Friends, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so today. That is the only thing that can truly fill that hole in your life and to give you the gift of eternal life. Now, in our passage, we see that making Abimelech king turns out to be a short-term filler that that begins to deteriorate, and it, it attracts destructive things as well because verses 22 through 25 tell us this. Now, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech in order that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem set an ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road. And it was told to Abimelech, Now, not only do we see that the time of Abimelech's rule is limited, he's only serving as king for three years, but the scope of his rule is limited as well. The Hebrew word for king is melech. That's why we hear Abimelech. So melech is the word that describes a king, but instead we find the Hebrew word sar used here. And while that's a word that can describe a a king, it is more often used in a diminutive form of a ruler or an official, basically, at that level. And so what it tells us is Abimelech never oversaw the entirety of the kingdom as he wanted. He only oversaw a few cities. And even in those, his power was limited. 
He can't even keep control of just a small area. This word that's translated as ruled is the Hebrew word used in Hosea 12.4 for wrestling. And what it says is as he ruled, there was this wrestling, this fighting with the people as they were both uh, in rebellion to punish Abimelech and the people. Shechem, as you'll remember, was in this place between two mountains. And what that means is the road, uh, the main caravan road came right through the city of Shechem. And that was a wonderful thing if you lived in Shechem because it meant all of the commerce of the area came through and you would charge tolls and taxes. So as these caravans came through Shechem, it was a way that the king enriched his coffers as he collected these taxes. But what happens is the people who are in rebellion say, we're going to start stealing things for ourselves," And it affects the king in multiple ways. One, people say, well, he's weak. He doesn't even have enough power to keep the streets safe. And then it also affected the taxes and revenue because uh, caravans begin to just go around Shechem. They said, we'll take an alternate route. It's longer, but it's safer. And as a result, there's less goods moving through his kingdom. And conversely, there were less and less good people there and more and more of those who were good for nothing moving in, like the man we meet in verses 26 through 29. It says, Now Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives, and he crossed over into Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trod them and held a festival, and they went into the house of their god, and they ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbal? And is not Zebul his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would therefore that this people were under my authority? Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. You know, the scriptures tell us we reap what we sow. And here we see that in Abimelech's life. Do you remember how he came to power? He went to the Canaanites and he says, hey, I'm, I'm bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. I'm, I'm one of you guys. Well, now Gaul comes in and he takes it to the next level. And he says, why do we have this half Jew over us? Why do we have somebody with Jewish blood ruling over Hamar, which was a Hivite prince? They say, you should have a Canaanite, a full-blooded, pure Canaanite ruling. And so he uses Abimelech's half-Jewish side against him. And he gathers the people to himself. Now, Abimelech had a lieutenant by the name of Zebul, which we see secretly sends word to Abimelech. And Abimelech, as we see in verse 40, is in uh, Arumah. Arumah, as you see on this slide, was located six miles to the southeast. Uh, You see where the arrow is, that's where Shechem is, and Arumah is down six miles further to the southeast. And what that tells you is the people, one of the reasons the people were unhappy with Abimelech is they figured, well, when he's king, he's going to move the capital to to Shechem. He's going to build his palace here. We're going to benefit from all the revenue and things like we see happening in Washington. And, and instead what happens is he makes his, his home six miles away. And so this adds to their discontent, and they say, well, let's get a guy who is going to deliver for us. And so they raise up this new king in his place, and Abimelech is told about it, and he's got to go and quash the rebellion. 
So he marches his army to Shechem. Now, Zebul is feeding Gael bad intelligence because he, he's able to keep you know, the, the army from being known that it's coming until it's right at the gate of the city. So Gaul hasn't prepared for battle, and what he should have done was retreat into the Shechem, which was a fortified walled city with you know, big, strong gates. He could have holed up in there and, and prepared uh, better for battle. But uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen warns us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And we see where pride goes before the fall because uh, Gael, as you'll remember, had said earlier to Abimelech, get your army and bring it on. And so Zebul goes to him and he says, hey, you called him out, he's here. You're going to lose face or are you going to fight? And he's more concerned about losing face than he is about anything else. And so he goes out to battle. He's unprepared, he's routed. And we see again how Shechem really doesn't uh, hold their loyalties to their king because they lock the gates, leave them out there to, to die. And uh, Abimelech comes up to the city, and he could have laid siege to it, started attacking it, but instead Abimelech withdraws. And what he's really doing is following his father's strategy because you'll remember when Gideon uh, went and attacked the Midianite camp, God had him divide his 300 soldiers into three groups. And this is what, what Abimelech's going to do. He's going to divide his army into three. And Gideon also, as you remember, when he pursued the 15,000 who escaped, he went deep into the territory, circled back, and came in the back way where they weren't expecting it. And so they think Abimelech has left. But what he does is he withdraws, he circles around, divides up his army. And in verse 43, we see that uh, the, the people had thought, well, it's safe, he's gone. And so the next day, they open up the gates of the city. They go out to work in the fields, and then there's this surprise attack. He slaughters uh, the people in the field. He gets into the city, captures it. The people who uh, remain flee to Beth Milo, uh, which was a fortress, a nearby fortress, and it's also where the Temple of Baal was located. So the people are like, hey, we worship this god named Baal, and so we're going to run to his place, and we're going to let our god protect us. But we see that Baal was false and, and couldn't do anything. He was powerless because what actually happens is the people are locked up in this uh, fortified tower. And um, Abimelech fulfills the prophecy because he piles wood all around the tower and he sets it on fire. And the result is over a thousand men and women are burned to death in this tower. Now, as the final act of destruction, Abimelech destroys the rest of the city, and then he goes and he spreads salt around everywhere, which turns the land desolate. If I can't have it, nobody can, is the way he views it. Now, as you look at verse 50, he's not done seeking revenge because he goes another 10 miles to the northeast to the town of Thebes, and there he tries to repeat the process. The people run into the fortified tower. He begins to pile wood around uh, the tower. But then what we're told is a woman takes a millstone. And in this slide, you see a picture of what a hand-grind millstone looks like. And so the top stone weighed about 20 pounds, and it would have been this uh, in the tower along with siege supplies to you know, process the grain while they were trying to outweigh the enemy. In there, And so what happens is this woman takes this top part of the millstone and as they're piling the wood around the tower, she kind of gets out and throws it out. 
and God directs it, and there's a, a direct hit on Abimelech's skull, and it crushes it. Now, as he's, as he's dying, uh, you see the depth of Abimelech's vanity, because all he can think about is how people will say he was killed by a woman. Do you remember last week when Jason talked about how it was a dishonor to die at the hands of a woman or a, a youth? And so as Abimelech is dying, he's just had this 20-pound stone, you know, crush him, and all he can think about is people are going to say I was killed by a woman. And so he tells one of his soldiers to run him through with a sword, and he's, he's killed. But if you read 2 Samuel eleven twenty one, you'll see that centuries later, God made sure that everybody knew he was killed by a woman because it says that there in 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. So once again, we see what you reap is what you sow because this disgraceful and violent man dies a disgraceful and violent death. Chapter 9 closes with verses 56 through 57 telling us, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. These people had set aside God, the true God, as the one who was the king over them. And the consequences that came is that that void was filled with destructive counterfeits. And friends, the same danger exists for us today. If we fill the void in our life with a a counterfeit filler that the world offers us, we will find the same things true of us. Sin may seem fun for a while. It may even bring you fulfillment for a few years, like Abimelech uh, reigned for three years. But ultimately, in the end, it leads to destruction. So as you look at your life this morning, I want you to, to ask yourself, who or what has been given control of your life? Who is it that is in the, the, the true throne of your life? Have you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Maybe you've done that in the past, but you've kind of seized control of the throne and you've said, God, I, I'm going to take over from here. And if you've taken over that place that once belonged to God or you've never given him control in the first place, you need to give God his rightful place on the throne. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He offers you that gift of eternal life. It is nothing we can earn. There is nothing we can do on our own. Romans 3.10 tells us there is an unrighteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know this. And if you're a person who has not yet received God, you can't do it on your own. It is a gift of grace. Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us that for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And so if you've never accepted God's gift of grace and eternal life to you, I invite you to do so today, to turn to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. That means you acknowledge that that you haven't lived a perfect life. None of us have. And because we are all sinners, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We owe that penalty of death with Jesus Christ came to pay for you and me. That's why Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
He shed his blood for you and me to wash away our sins, and he invites you to accept that gift of grace. If you've never given God his proper place, yielding the throne of your life, I invite you to do so now as we go to prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. All you have to do is acknowledge in your heart of hearts that you're a sinner. That means you haven't been perfect your whole life. That at some point in time, you've disobeyed, you've done something wrong, which we all have. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as sinners, we owe that penalty of death. And Jesus says, I died for you. I took your place. And if we will accept him and give him that place in our life, then we will be saved. If you'd like to do that, I invite you to bow your heads now and pray this prayer with me. You don't have to say this prayer out loud. It's just your way of saying to God in your heart of hearts and in your mind, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I accept your son, Jesus, as my savior. If you'd like to do that, then pray this prayer with me. Dear God, today I give my life to you. I accept your son, Jesus Christ, as my savior. I believe, Jesus, that you came and you lived a perfect and sinless life. You ultimately went to the cross, giving your life in my place to pay that penalty of sin that I owe. And today, God, I accept your gift of grace. I accept your death in my place. I believe, Jesus, you rose from the dead three days later, showing that you conquered sin and death. And today I'm inviting you, Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. Thank you for this gift of eternal life. Would you help me now, Lord, to live for you? And for the rest of us who have received Jesus as our Savior, this may be a time where we say, God, I'm sorry that I've taken over. I'm sorry that I've taken that place that belonged to you. And today, God, I yield that throne again. I give you my life. I give you your place on the throne. I want you to be the one leading and guiding me. And so today, God, I yield the throne again to you. Would you use me? Would you help me, God, to be your messenger of grace to others around me? Pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. If you're online worshiping with us and you prayed that prayer, please email us here at Wayside Chapel. We'd love to follow up with you to help you begin to grow in your new walk with Christ. For the rest of us who know the Lord, he calls on us to be salt and light, to go into the world and share the good news. So let's do that.